If you really, really love something, you're going to make time for it, right? If I stood up here and offered that I had free tickets to your favorite band's concert, they were coming to town, most of us would probably figure out a way to make time for those free tickets, right? We'd make time for something because we care about it. As we consider what God has for us in Deuteronomy today, I want us to consider the fact that we give time, we give priority, we give precedence to the things that we love, to the things that are important to us. If we give value to something, it makes a difference in our life. So if you're new here, uh, we're going to be studying the book of Deuteronomy. It's at the beginning of Scripture, so while everyone's finding their way there, uh, if you uh, don't have a Bible, we've got Bibles hiding under your chair uh, that I would invite you to grab one so that you can follow along uh, in your pew Bible, in your chair Bible. Uh, we're going to be on page 89, so you don't have to look around and figure out where we're at. Just turn to page 89 and you'll be there ready to follow right along with us. But for the first few weeks of our study in Deuteronomy, we've been working our way through. We're in chapter 4 now. And over these first four chapters, we've been talking about uh, the story of how Moses has led the people of Israel through the wilderness, through some incredible things that God has done, and he's led them to the edge of this promised land, this place where God has said, nation of Israel, you are my people, and as my people, I'm going to establish you as a nation. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to make you uh, into a people group, into a nation, into a group that, that has its own identity, just like all the other nations in the world. And so they've come to the edge of this, this territory, this land that they were going to take. And before they go in to begin uh, conquering this land and taking this land that God has told them, that he was going to give them. Moses stops to remind them of all of the great things that God has done that have led them to this point. We know that God is going to follow through and and, and come through for us in the future because of all the ways that he's come through for us up to this point. So that's kind of the the, the framework for where we're at as we pick up in Deuteronomy chapter 2, or chapter 4, excuse me. Deuteronomy chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 25. Let's read 25 through 28 together. I invite you to follow along. When you become the father of children and children's children and have remained long in the land and act corruptly and make an idol in the form of anything and do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will surely perish quickly from the land where you are going over the Jordan to possess. You shall not live long on it, but will be utterly destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. There you will serve gods, the work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. Last week, Pastor Dave did such a great job that the first part of this chapter talks about how it was so important for the Israelites to obey, to do what God had told them to do because God is good and God's way is good. And God's desire for His people was not that they would just go try to figure it out for themselves and, and kind of wander around in the dark trying to figure out how to live life best. But He gave them instructions. He said, if you do it my way, 
your life will go well. He promised that, that things would be better if they trusted him. And now we see a warning. We, we start this week with, but you're not always going to do it my way, God's way. Sometimes you're going to do it the way you want to do it. And if you do, it's not going to go well for you. Uh, see, he, he talks about this sin of idolatry. And idolatry is one of the, one of the big one sins that God cares a lot about because idolatry is not just a mistake where somebody goes, oh yeah, uh, you know, I, I wasn't supposed to lie, but in reality I, I lied because I wanted to and uh, because it got me out of a bind. And so idolatry is a big one to God because idolatry is someone looking towards God and saying, I know who you say you are, but I don't believe it. I know that you say you are in control of everything. I know that, that, that people tell me that, that you're this great and powerful and mighty God, but I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to live the way that I want to live. I'm going to worship what I want to worship. I'm going to give priority to what I want to give priority to, not what you've told me to give priority to. And in that sin of idolatry, we reject God's provision and we reject His offer of a relationship. We reject His offer of the life that He wants us to live. And we do it our way instead. So God took that sin seriously and He promises in these verses that if they choose to worship someone else, if they choose to give their lives to something else, that it's not going to end well for them, that He's going to destroy the individuals or that He is going to take His people that He's promising this land to and that when they are identified as people who worship other gods, people who worship another way of life, he's going to remove them from the land. They're going to be exiled. They're going to be conquered and be taken away. And someone else is going to come in and, and live in that land. And we know that that was something that happened uh, a few pages forward uh, in the exile that the Israelites are taken out of the land. But but we see that God takes that sin seriously. And the next couple of verses that we're going to read in just a second are going to show us that God's punishment is not just for punishment's sake, but that it's with a goal of ultimately bringing them back, helping them realize the mistakes of what they had done and calling them to repent. So let's look at verses 29 through 31. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, from that exiled place, from that punished place, you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search for him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. When you're in distress and all these things have come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant that your fathers, which he swore to them. He offers forgiveness here. He knows that they're going to do what they want to do because we all have that tendency, right? We all have that tendency no matter how great we know God is, no matter how many times we've seen God come through for us before. Sooner or later, we, we want to do what we want to do. And so we, we make other things more important in our life than God. We commit the sin of idolatry just like they did. But God, even before they disobeyed, he wrote these words. 
that if you will seek the Lord with all of your heart and with all of your soul, that your God is a compassionate God and He will forgive you. God's promising to forgive them even before they messed up. Does that seem like a bad idea to you guys? If you promise your kids that you're going to forgive them, that it's going to be okay, aren't we at a risk of encouraging that age-old line, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission? God's offering forgiveness even when people hadn't yet sinned. People hadn't yet sought forgiveness. He said, if you will come to me and you will ask for forgiveness and you will repent with all of your heart and with all of your soul, that he was willing to forgive. God was willing to show mercy to the Israelites and God's willing to show mercy to me and to you today. That is one of the themes that we see over and over and over again in Scripture. God is a merciful God. God is a compassionate God. God is a loving God. And even though God is also just, that God knows that sin has to be punished, that wrongdoing cannot just stand and, and, and be winked at and, and ignored, and our sin has to be dealt with. But if people would come to Him, if people would repent, with all of their heart and with all of their soul, we know time and time and time and time again that God is a compassionate God, just like it says in verse 31. God is a compassionate God, and He will be faithful to His people. I want to take note, before we go any further, of of some warnings, though. Some warnings that are here and some warnings that are important for me and you to remember today because God is compassionate. Because God is loving. But it is dangerous for us to just think, God's going to continue to forgive. And so I'll just, I'll just come back at the end of my life and I'll ask God to forgive me for however I've lived up to this point. And God, I know that He's going to forgive me. So I'll just, I'll just pray at the end of my life. And God and I will be good. Right? Well, there's a danger in that. There's a few dangers in that. The first danger that we see in that, that we see in... Verse 26 in our passage here is that many of the Israelites who rebelled were destroyed. Sin has consequences. And when God allows us to go do what we want to do, to live life our way instead of His way, there's consequences sometimes that come from that. Maybe you uh, go out and, and, and say, oh, it's just, it's just a little alcohol. It's just a little weed. It's just a little whatever. Maybe you don't get an opportunity to ask God for forgiveness because something happens. You overdose. You have an accident. Your destruction, your end comes before you get an opportunity to say, God, I'm really sorry, would you forgive me? Before we get an opportunity to seek God with all of our heart and with all of our soul. Maybe destruction comes from our sin And so that's a danger of us just saying, well, God will forgive me in the end. I'll just go do what I want and misuse His grace. The second danger for us is that those who repent do so from the pain of their punished state. I say that to say, sometimes sin hurts us. Sometimes God is willing to offer forgiveness, but why would we want to to go do what we want if it's not what's best for us? 
we often have this short-sighted view of our sin where we say, well, this is what I want to do, so I'm going to go do it. Well, that's great, except for the fact that maybe there's, maybe there's a lot of pain and a lot of difficulty on that road, and you choosing that sin is going to hurt you a lot moving forward. Let's give the example of a man or a woman who chooses to walk out on their spouse and go have an affair. In the moment, they temporarily that they desire that other relationship. But what they're not thinking about is all the pain that that's going to cause in their life and in the lives of those around them, those that they love. Their relationship with their previous spouse is never going to be the same. Their relationship with, with their kids is never going to be the same. Their life is going to look different financially, uh, where they live, the friends that they have. All of these things are collateral damage that cause a great deal of pain. And if we are just committed to our own happiness, sometimes the best way for us to live is to do what God tells us to do, to live the way that God tells us to live instead of what we want. One reason that we stay away from sin is that we're committed to our own happiness. We choose the enduring joys of a relationship with God and those that we love over the fleeting pleasures of sin. It may seem self-serving, but ultimately living life the way that God tells us to live, it's, it's the way that life was intended to be lived. And ultimately, it's going to be far greater than whatever fleeting happiness that you're going to find in that sin that you desire in that moment. The third warning for us about misusing God's grace is that there are many who never recover from that serious sin. That there are many who, they say, well, God will forgive me, so I'll just do what I want, and then I'll come back and I'll, I'll seek God and I'll ask for His forgiveness later. But perhaps people's hearts begin to harden. People's hearts, their desires begin to change, and, and maybe, maybe in many instances, people never come back to God. People never come back and ask for forgiveness. And what you know today to be true of God you may not believe the same thing another day. Living life the way that God tells us to live it is always best. And there's no reason to put off for tomorrow the life that we should be living, the life that we should be following the Lord in today. So we're going to bite off a big chunk of the rest of our passage. Let's look at verses 32 through 40. We're going to see some really incredible things about how God has revealed himself to his people in Israel. Verse 32, it says, Indeed, ask now concerning the former days which, you were which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and inquire from one end of the heavens to the other, has anything been done like this great thing? Or has anything been heard like it? Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire as you've heard it and survived? Or has a God tried to take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials, as he did in Egypt? By signs and wonders and by war and by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm and by great terrors, as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, he is God and there is no other besides him. Out of the heavens he let you hear his voice to discipline you and on earth he let you see his great fire and you heard his words from the midst of the fire. Because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them. And he personally brought you from Egypt by his great power, driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you, 
to bring you in and to give you their land for an inheritance as it is today. Know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, He is God in heaven above all and on the earth below. There is no other. So you shall keep His statutes and His commandments which I am giving you today that it may go well with you and with your children after you and that you may live long on the land which the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Verse 35, we see something that, that I want us to take note out of that big chunk. If we look at verse 35, it says all of these things that had happened in the previous verses, all of these ways that God had revealed himself when he sent fire upon Mount Sinai and he spoke to his people, the people of Israel, from that great fire. When they saw the great and mighty signs that God performed in Egypt to set these people free from the powerful Egyptians. All of these things that had been revealed to them about God. Verse 35 it says, it, all these things happen so that you might know the Lord. Not that you would know about the Lord. Not that you would know some truths that are important for us to grasp. That, that, that God's good or that God's strong or that God's powerful. He revealed himself to them so that they might know the Lord personally. That they would be his people. God gave them first-hand experiences. They could see God with their own eyes. They had been able to, to experience God's provision for them with their own hands. With their own stomachs. You remember God had provided quail and, and bread that fell from heaven that they were able to eat what God had given them to eat. They had known God personally. And I think for many of us today, we run the risk of looking at these cool stories about how God provided for His people, and we go, yeah, if God would speak to me from a fire that came down on the mountain, I would probably listen too. We might not be praying for fire right now, because I know it's, you know, it's fire season. We don't want fire around us right now. But if God would speak and God would reveal himself to me like he revealed himself to the people in Deuteronomy, well, of course I would believe. Of course, if God spoke to me directly, I'll listen. But God doesn't. If he would just do some great sign, maybe I could believe. If God would, would reveal himself by some miracle, then I would follow him. Well, you know what? This book that I'm holding in my hand is a miraculous revelation from God. Far more, far greater. I would argue this book is far more of a miracle than what the people of Israel experienced when they saw the Red Sea part in front of them so that they could walk through on dry ground. It's far more of a miracle than, than fire coming down from heaven and, and God speaking to them on that mountain. And maybe you don't believe me, but this book is special. And I want to take just a minute and explain to you why it's special. This book is not just a book. It's internally consistent. There are no contradictions within this book, but it's not just a book. It's actually 66 books. It's 66 different writings that were written by some 40 authors over a span of 1,500 years. People like tax collectors and fishermen and, and artists, all different walks of life people, different authors, wrote this book. It was written in three different languages. It was written on three different continents. 
And throughout all of that, some of these people were even writing in different places at the same time, and they agreed on something. We can't get two people to agree on anything if they didn't see it with their own eyes. The fact that it agrees with itself completely tells us that it's not just, it doesn't just have 40 human authors that got together and tried to figure out how to put this book together so that it looks like it makes sense and that it's consistent. It's special because God inspired his word, that God has preserved his word, that God has given us this book, and the fact that it is consistent, that there are no flaws, that there are no inconsistencies, that there are no disagreements anywhere in these pages, that's an act of God because no human team of people over the course of 1,500 years could could accomplish a feat like that. Maybe you still don't believe that it's a miracle, and so I want to present manuscript evidence to you. We've got some law enforcement people in the room here, and I think if, if we were to sit down and engage, there was a, an incident, a traffic incident. And at that traffic incident, we were trying to figure out, get to the root of what happened at that collision, that accident. Perhaps... If we had an eyewitness, we would be able to figure out what really happened. If there's one eyewitness that comes into traffic court and says, this is what I saw, people are probably going to believe that that's what happened. What if we had 10 eyewitnesses that all saw it, that all came, that all confirmed, that all said the exact same thing, the exact same story? We're more likely to believe it, right? Well, in that same way, we have to look at historical writings. We have to look at historical books and and try to do our best to determine what was really said, what really happened. And so we take manuscripts. Manuscripts are our bits of writing, are our copies. Most of the time we don't have the original that was written with, with any of these things that I put on the screen. We don't have the originals. What we do have is copies. Somebody sat down and wrote a copy of it and Our best guess is to figure out how closely they match up and how many copies do we have and how close is that copy to the original. If we have a copy from a thousand years later, there's a thousand years that something could have happened to the message, right? If we have a copy that was made just a few years later, we're more likely to have what was really said. Books and writings and things, if you you look and see things like uh, writings of Caesar, or writings of Plato, or writings of Aristotle, Homer, all these things that we believe as true, we teach in our schools, we, we have verified these are true. They have, some of them have 10 copies, some of them have 50 copies. We have 50 copies that all say pretty close to the same thing. We're going to believe that that message is true. You know how many copies we have of the New Testament? Bits and pieces, and sometimes big chunks and whole books that we can put together and see if it's true, we have over 25,000 copies. We believe that the Iliad is what it says it is because there's 643 copies. The New Testament, we have over 25,000. 25,000 accounts that agree and say the same thing. The Bible is miraculously what we say it is. Maybe you still don't believe. Maybe you still aren't convinced that the Bible is special. And so I want to present to you the prophecies about Jesus. There were over 300 prophecies that were made about a single Messiah, a single person that would come that would save the people of Israel and us today that would save us from our sins. 
that God was going to punish all of humanity if it wasn't for this Messiah that would come and would live and would set us free from the punishment that we deserved. 300 prophecies. What are the chances that 300 prophecies could be fulfilled in a single person? Well, I'm not good at math. I was never good at math. So I found a video that explained it better than I could. So let's take a look. How do you know what's true is really true? That's where the evidence comes in. Christ's offer to turn you into a new person is real if his claim to be God is true. So let's consider the evidence of eight prophecies proving his claim is true. Do you know what the probability factor is of only eight prophecies being fulfilled in Jesus? No. A one in ten to the seventeenth power. One in ten to the seventeenth power. Huh? That's one in ten to this many times. I don't get it. If you were to take ten to the seventeenth power Girl Scout Thin Mint cookies. How many? That's over a quintillion cookies. And spread them across the state of Texas. Yeehaw! They would cover every inch of the state and form a pile of Girl Scout Thin Mint cookies two feet deep. That's a lot of Thin Mints. A whole lot of Thin Mints. Now take one more Thin Mint and lick all the chocolate off, toss it into that pile and stir the whole thing up. Blindfold yourself, walk the entire state from Amarillo to Laredo, stopping just once to stoop down and pick a single blind Thin Mint cookie. Got it. Take off the blindfold. Aw, nuts. The chances of you picking the chocolateless cookie is the same as the chance that one person could have fulfilled just eight prophecies about Jesus in one lifetime. That's crazy. It's unthinkable. But Jesus Christ did not fulfill eight prophecies in one lifetime. Whoa. He fulfilled over 300. 300, girl! Whoa. And 29 of them in just one day. The prophecies are historically documented. The facts that actually happened to Jesus are historically documented. There's only one thing left to do. I know. For me to weigh the evidence. It's all part of the evidence. Because if it is true that he is the Son of God, what he offers you, a new life in him, is real. Now I know it's real, whether I believed it or not. It's all part of the evidence. As simply as I can put it, do you believe now that this book is a special revelation just like God uniquely revealed himself to the people of Israel in this passage that we're looking at? He reminded them and he said, listen to what I have to say. Trust me, follow me, obey me because I've proven myself to be true. I've proven myself to be powerful. I've proven that that I'm different than everything else out there in the world. So, as we stand here and hold this book and sit with it in our lap today, do we treat it as special like it is? Do we treat it as a unique and special book that that is unlike anything else? Mahatma Gandhi uh, had an interesting view on Christianity. We're not going to quote him a lot. 
standing up here in the pulpit. But he said, talking about how Christians view this book, he said, you Christians have in your keeping a document with enough dynamite in it to blow the whole of civilization to bits, to turn society upside down, to bring peace to this war-torn world. But you read it as if it were good literature and nothing else. This is a powerful and special book that God has revealed himself to us. God has given us everything that we need for life. The Bible is sufficient that no matter what happens, it doesn't tell me how to build a computer, but it tells me everything that I need for life. It gives me direction. It gives me instruction. It gives me cautions and warnings about what to do and what not to do. Everything that I need in life is written right here in these pages. But I think a lot of us, we... We view it and we treat it kind of like what Gandhi said. We treat it as good literature. We treat it as something that, yeah, we should, we should probably find some more time to read that every once in a while. I've got a stack of books. I've got shelves full of books that I hope to find time to read one day. There's ones that, that I've got on there that somebody gave to me, said, hey, this is a great one, you should read it. And yeah, I really got to find time to get to that one. Is that the way that we treat Scripture? Yeah, I really got to find time to get to that one day. Because I think if God showed up and stood up here and spoke to us directly this morning, we'd perk up and we'd pay attention and we'd want to see what He's got to say. I don't think many of us would be looking at our watch going, all right, God, you got till noon, but then I'm hungry and I'm leaving. I got to get to lunch before everybody else gets there. If God showed up and God spoke, it would be special and it would be different and it would be something that we gave importance to. How much priority in our daily schedule do we give to this book? While there are many chapters ahead, we've got a lot more to cover in Deuteronomy. We've got a lot of chapters, a lot of pages that are going to talk about God's specific laws. We're we're coming to the end of the, the history section of Moses saying, hey, guys, we need to follow God's laws because of everything that he's done in the past. Next week, we start getting into some of those actual laws, the ways that God says, this is the way that you should live because it's the best way. But as we do all of that, we see in our passage today in verses 39 and 40, we see the why. We see why all those laws are important for us and why we should give credence, give value, give attention to the way that God has told us to live. It says, Know therefore today and take it to heart that the Lord, He is God in heaven above and on the earth below, and there is no other. You shall keep His statutes and His commandments which I am giving you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and, you, and that you may live long on the land which the Lord your God is giving you for all time. We obey God's instructions because God's way is best. We obey God's commandments that He's going to give us over the next 30 or 40 pages because we trust that He is who He says He is. We trust that, that He is God in heaven above and there was no one like Him. There is no other religion. There is no other God. Even what I think, I've found it to be false a lot of the time. I was fully convinced of it, but... Maybe I didn't have all the information that I thought I had. How many times have you made a decision 
And all of a sudden, years later, you look back on that decision and go, man, what was I thinking? That happens to me a lot. I'm sure you're smarter than I am and you don't make those mistakes. But I make those realizations a lot. God doesn't ever look back and go, oh, man, if I had just known about that, then we would have changed and made a different decision. God is perfect and his way is perfect and his commandments are perfect and the way he calls us to live is perfect. There's a couple final sections that I want to just take note of because God saw fit to put them in here and so we want to take just a moment and discuss them. Verses 41 to 43, close to the end of our passage today that we're looking at. Those, those three verses talk about refuge cities, that Moses was going to set up cities in the land that they had already conquered in chapter 3. He was going to set up these refuge cities that if someone accidentally killed a neighbor, if someone accidentally committed a crime, they could go to these cities and they could find refuge and they could know that they were going to receive a fair trial and fair justice and not just someone's half-hearted revenge that they were going to set out to, to get even. What we can get from these, Moses talks more about them in chapter 19, so we're going to, we're going to cover them more fully in, in chapter 19. But right now, their inclusion, I think it's important for us, and, and in this same discussion that we've been having, today. God is a merciful God. God offers mercy to us, and if we have been forgiven a lot, we should live with mercy and with forgiveness towards other people in the same way. The mercy that we've received from God, that means that his desire for his people is to live generously and to live mercifully towards others. We don't have refuge cities where we set up where we can guarantee someone fair process today because that's one of the desires of our judicial system is that people receive fair process, that people receive an opportunity to defend themselves, that people receive fair justice and not just some person's opinion of what justice would look like. God's people should be identified by mercy. God's people should be identified by looking out for the cause of others and that is why these verses were put in here in 41 through 43. In 44 through 49, they're a a transition section that I mentioned earlier. The first four chapters of Deuteronomy have been the history lesson of what God has done up to this point. Guys, we have to obey because remember how how great God has been to us in the past. And he transitions forward Uh, to make the arguments that God's law that was going to be revealed should be followed. So what do we do with all of this? What do we do with the message that we've received today? Well, I think there's there's two places that people can be at, that you might be at, that that maybe you've got one of these two responses that, that God wants you to consider today. The first one is perhaps... You've sat here today and you've heard about God's gracious love. About how there was no sin, whether it was idolatry, whether it was something else. There was no sin that the Israelites could commit that was too great for God to forgive them. That if they would return to God and, and, and love God and follow God with all of their heart and with all of their soul, there was nothing 
that would cause God not to forgive them and not to love them. I can stand here today and tell you there is nothing that you've done, there's no sin that you've committed that God looks at you and says, no, that's too much. There's nothing that that you can come here into church today and go, this God sounds pretty awesome, but there's no way he could forgive a person like me. If that's you sitting here, that you've never received that offer of forgiveness that God has given to all of us, that even though we're sinful, even though we have disobeyed his laws, even though we've put other things in our life as more important than him, That deserves to be punished. But God punished His Son, Jesus, so that He wouldn't have to punish me and you. That's the good news of Scripture. That's the good news of what people talk about, the the Gospel. When people talk about being saved, becoming a Christian, that's what they're talking about. That I'm not a good person. It's important for me to realize I'm not a good person. God doesn't love me because I was good enough to earn it. He loves me because even though I wasn't, He punished Jesus so that He wouldn't have to punish me. And that if I would just come to Him and say, God, I need You and I need Your forgiveness because I'm not enough on my own, He freely offers it to anyone who would receive it. And so if that's you today that you haven't received it but you want to, come speak to me after the service. Come speak to our prayer team that's going to be down here after the service. Don't leave here today wondering if God's mercy that we've talked about is for you, because I promise you it is. If you would receive it, the offer is there. Maybe that's, that's not where you're at. Maybe you've already made that decision. You've already given your life to the Lord. How do you value this book? For me this week, God keeps poking me in the ribs, poking me in the... Hey, 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 you're going to get up and you're going to talk about how important this book is. Should you be valuing it more too? And so I've had to deal with the Lord and I've had to confess that, that there's times when I find other ways to fill my time. If I really believe truly with all of my heart that this book is what I'm standing up here telling you it is, I probably should be reading it a lot more. I should be setting aside some of that time that I designate to entertainment or to other things that I enjoy doing. My fantasy football lineup doesn't need all the attention that I give it. Maybe I should be valuing this book more. And maybe for you, that's the same thing. How do you view this book? Is it something that we get to Sunday morning and we go, guys, where's my Bible? I haven't seen it all week. I can't find it. You wipe the dust off of it so it looks like you've been using it all week and you bring it to church. Do we treat it as something that we carry along with us, an accessory that comes to church with us? Or do we treat it as God's special revelation where He has spoken to us miraculously just like He did to the people of Israel? Because if we do, let's give it the value it deserves. Just like I talked about at the beginning. We give value to the things that are important to us. I invite the band to come up make their way up to the stage. Do we love God and we value His Word the way that we say we do? I can't answer that question for you. I can only answer that question in my life. And I'll admit that there's times when other things 
steal my attention, steal my focus, steal my time that belongs to this book, that belongs to our God who loved us enough to set us free from what I think is best because He gave us what He knows is best. Would you commit to making Him most important in your life, in your day calendar, in your checkbook? Is God most important in everything? My prayer is that He is. My hope is that He is. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the miraculous revelation, the special, special message that we have received from You in Your Word. God, that You have revealed Yourself to the people of Israel, and and we can read about that, and we can experience that, and we can know that, but we didn't get to experience it for ourselves. But God, You have given us Your Word, and that is a miraculous and special revelation that can't just be chalked up to happenstance, to coincidence. God, we have your special and inspired word. Help us to trust that you are who you say you are, that it is what it says it is and what history says it is and what the evidence says that it is. And God, help us to to value it in a way that it deserves. God, change our hearts this morning. We are so prone to go and do what we want. God, help us to be people who go and who live how you want us to live and do what you want us to do. We offer our lives to you. We pray that you would use them and that you would work in us. We're yours. And we lay our lives down on the altar of sacrifice before you this morning. Amen.